Now we are continuing in the answer and in the discussion of several questions that have grown out of our study of the second coming. And we thought it good to give you an opportunity as a church to put in writing some of the questions that you had that we did not and purposely did not deal with in our short series back in January on the subject of the second coming of Christ. We wanted to help you have at least some opportunity to enter into the forum of dealing with some of those thornier issues. This morning we begin with the fifth of the questions that we have received from you, having considered some fundamental and very good concerns last time. This morning we dive into deeper waters, and we begin with the fifth question of our series, and the question goes something like this, if I understand as I read it. In Revelation 13, Matthew, and I believe the the questioner means Matthew Henry, suggests that first, the beast is pagan idolatry. Second, the second beast, in verse 11, is papal idolatry. And third, verses 14 and 15, the image of the first beast is the perpetuation of idolatry. Is this a sound understanding? One trembles to evaluate Matthew Henry or to pass judgment on his understanding. And the reason one trembles is because so often he's right on target. Well, I've decided not to evaluate Matthew Henry, but to respond according to my own understanding to this whole chapter 13 of Revelation. And I want you to turn with me there as we consider it. You remember in our somewhat lengthy series on eschatology and again in our lengthier series on the book of Revelation, we were very careful about how dogmatic we were in dealing with this subject. We, uh, I don't believe that we have ever in many years sought to explain the mark of the beast or to define the 666. I think we've uh, been very careful to avoid uh, being uh, overly ambitious in handling this material. But I think that because it is so rampant among evangelicals and professing Christians to consider this, and because there are questions that grow out of a a careful study of the passage, we ought at least sometime deal with it. And that's what we're trying to do now. I hope that in these minutes that are available to us in this Sunday school hour, we'll be at least able to clear away some of the cobwebs and lay out some fundamental principles that may help us at least dispense with some of the folderol and foolishness that has surrounded this study in history. Now, I do, with some men wiser than I, uh, say at the outset that we, I don't believe, can ever be absolutely certain about much of of the details of this passage. I personally think that those who are absolutely certain that they found the secrets of the book of Revelation and all the details are proud. Now, I may be wrong, but that's my own view. I think it is incipient pride to assume that, alas, for the first time in Christian history, someone's finally figured it all out. One principle that I want you to keep in mind, 
As you study last things, the word eschatology means the study of last things, the culmination of the purposes of God in history, the teleios, the last, the end, the purposed events of history, when history comes to its God-ordained conclusion. As you study eschatology, remember that just as the Old Testament saints and the prophets had lots of details unclear to them regarding the first coming of Christ. Though they prophesied it, and though as we look back we can say, wow, how clear that is. How could they have missed it? In their understanding and as they wrote it, there was much about it that was fuzzy. They sought out to see what manner of times the Spirit did signify when He spoke of the coming and the sufferings and the glories of Messiah. And much about it they could not have explained. Even up to the day of Pentecost, there was much confusion and many uh, misunderstandings even among the apostles because of their view of the Old Testament prophets. The first coming had with it what we can call mysteries. Not, not the kind of mystery you read about in the Bible, but what we would use in modern language, some stuff you just couldn't understand until it happened. Things you couldn't have predicted till it happened. God had held some of that back for His own revelation. Well, much the same in the New Testament. There are things that state the second coming of Christ that still leave an element of mystery in them. There is this element of uncertainty that I believe God has purposely left with us in this subject. I do not mean that that means we cannot understand it and shouldn't study it. Nor do I mean we ought to say, well, we don't deal with eschatology because that's created too many problems in the church and we we want to avoid it. Because it has created so many problems, we must deal with it. It's a part of the canon of Scripture. It's a part of the whole counsel of God. And it would be irresponsible for us not to deal with it. It is especially irresponsible and perhaps and probably sin if we don't preach on the second coming and preach on those more principled and wide doctrines and applications that grow out of that doctrine. But let us at least be humble enough to understand that there are things about the future God has not been pleased easily and clearly to reveal to us. He led the apostles into all truth and gave them the ability to speak of things to come. However, I'm not sure that passage in John requires that we understand it to mean that he told them everything that was to come. Things to come, yes, not everything. And in many of the passages in which they tell us of things to come, it is they're couched in language that leaves questions. The fact that in the year 1991, educated and well-read saints still discuss and debate these questions with an element of puzzlement and confusion after all that's been written about them ought to tell us something about the way it's revealed in the Bible. And we, if we think that God has reserved some special insight to us in our generation, that He hid from the eyes of the church fathers, that He hid from the eyes of the early church, that He hid from the eyes of the reformers and the Puritans, and hid from the eyes of men greater in wisdom and holiness than many of us in this generation, I think we express again our our vanity and our pride. So let's be careful to understand that principle. There are things we probably will not know till they come to pass. So let's remember that. However, there are things I think we can know. Hopefully we can give some of them here. Look with me at chapter 13, verse 1. Speaking of someone standing upon the sand of the sea, 
I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns ten diadems, and upon his heads names of blasphemy. Now, note the plurality here. This is one beast, and yet he is signified as having crowns and heads and horns and names of blasphemies. What does that tell us? It tells us this is not one individual human being. This beast represents much more than a single individual in history. Whatever this beast is, it represents kingdoms, it represents rule and power, it represents names of blasphemies, idolatrous professions and blasphemous statements and all sorts of a plethora, as it were, of power and rule and kingdom and authority. Seven heads, a number of perfection, complete. Ten horns, horns being the, the old symbol that you saw back in Daniel and Zechariah. A horn represents power represents rule and authority, usually governmental and military power and authority, real power in history. The four horns uh, went forth into Zechariah's prophecy, and the four artificers came and broke those horns. Those four horns were the horns of power all over the world, militating against the people of God. But God had provided an answer for them in every case. So four smiths covered the earth to break those powers of the world for the preservation and the protection of God's church. And so note the multiplicity of the imagery in this beast. This is not an individual man in history. Whatever it is, it's not one individual man. Not so far. Verse 2. The beast which I saw was like to a leopard, his feet of a bear, his mouth as a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. The source of his power is the dragon. Who's the dragon? The book of Revelation in chapter 12 just told us. It's the devil, Satan. So whoever the beast is, whatever the beast is, he is the servant of the devil. And he gets his power from the devil, the God of this world. It's possible that this imagery of coming up out of the sea is the imagery that this beast is a representative of people, mankind, the sea of humanity, as is sometimes the case in Revelation and sometimes not the case. But whatever the source, he's from the devil. His power is the dragon. He gets his authority, his great authority from the dragon. And notice again the multiplied imagery attached to it. Now, brethren, if you must be literal, you are going to wait for some individual in history to come with his feet, the paws of a leopard. He's going to have four feet and they're going to be leopard's feet. Uh or No, he was like a leopard. His feet were that of a bear. So two feet with a leopard's uh, appearance. Here's a beast. Here's an animal. That's exactly what John is saying he saw. He saw an animal, but a strange animal, like a leopard, feet like a bear. That means he's got powerful feet. Mouth as the mouth of a lion. He roars with great authority and power and terror. And the dragon gave him his power. This is a description of an awesome being. Now, this being is multiplied in plural. I believe that it's a picture of the governmental powers of the history of the world that always stand to threat to threaten the church of Christ. But go on. Verse 3. 
I saw one of the heads as though it had been smitten unto death. And the death stroke was healed and the whole earth wandered after the beast. I don't know exactly what is meant by the death stroke and the death stroke healed. I think we get very uh, reckless when we start picking the one individual case in history where this is answered. There's no way to be certain. You can pick any number of instances in which this world, pagan, governmental, uh, the power of the devil and the world powers somewhere where it's been put down for a bit and then come back. You could call it Rome. Uh, that If you're going to pick one, you, you would start there because Rome is, was the entity in the mind of John when this was written. Rome was the pagan power of blasphemy against Jehovah during this time. Rome did represent the, the devil's power against the church during this time. But we, we want to be careful. But we can say this. The whole world wondered after the beast. This, the whole world, the, the general earth uh, was amazed at this power. At this power, at this throne, at this rule. The whole world wondered. And they worshipped the dragon. Now, is this to be taken in the, in the literalistic sense that so far we haven't seen this happen, but there's going to come a day when you're going to have the whole world, perhaps by satellite television, worshipping a dragon. Is that what we're reading here? Does this mean that it's the Chinese dragon? Can you take it literally and look for an answer in history specifically to this vision? I think you better not. If you were with us in our study of the book of Revelation, you'll remember that one of the principles of understanding the book of Revelation is that it is a highly symbolic book. It is written in picturesque, dramatic language for the purpose of simplifying and graphically and dramatically expressing great truths Elsewhere revealed much more clearly in the Bible. The Revelation is not primarily a book of new truth, but a book of old truth dramatically portrayed the way the flag of the United States brings to mind all sorts of truths representing what our nation stands for, but there's not a word on it. You see the colors and the brightness and the flirt of furling of the flag and things well up in you. And if you know the history of the flag, and if you know what the colors mean and the stars mean, and you believe in the symbolism, then things happen in your thinking and therefore in your affections when you see that old glory waving. That imagery is designed to strike a note in the heart. And so the book of Revelation, as a symbolic book, is, dis is designed to strike notes as we recall these beautiful pictures these sometimes horrible pictures, if we understand the symbols and what they're pointing toward, we won't need to go through all the language each time the picture is presented. It'll strike a note in our hearts. And so we believe it, this is consistent with that general tone of this apocalyptic literature. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? In other words, there's power in this beast, and the world will submit to that power and worship him because they can't fight against him. There's the picture here that what's, what would be the use of going against him anyway? We better cooperate with him. Who can fight against the beast? Who can make war with the beast? And so they all worship him. They do what he says. They play the game. They play along with this beast. And they're worshiping the dragon. I submit that this is not a picture of the world bowing in front of a literal dragon. This is the world worshiping the devil by submitting to the world system and compromising truth in order to get along. Giving up the gospel in order to make it in this world. 
Not forsaking houses, lands, wife, children, husbands, uh, their own lives also. But not enduring to the end, but under the pressure of persecution and the cares of this world, the word is choked off from those who professed it, those who might have believed it. The world and its power makes them give up faith and therefore they worship at the beast. And then verse 5, there was given to him a mouth speaking great things. And blasphemous. And there was given to him authority to continue 42 months. Now starting at the end of that verse, the 42 months, remember, answers to that same period of time that's symbolically represented elsewhere in this book as 1260 days. A time, times, and half a time. A year, two years, and half a year. Three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months. Why give it in different imagery? Because the different passages... Are, are different concepts of history, but it's the same period of history. And so in the different concepts are, um, maybe we say, events or applications of history, the writer, the revelation, reveals it with different terminology to show a different purpose for this revelation, and yet it's the same period of time. Three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months. What is that period of time? Is it... Three and a half literal years yet to come in the history of the world just before the return of Christ? I do not believe so. And the reason I do not believe so is that nowhere in the book of Revelation is there any indication that most of this stuff is not going to occur until just before the return of Christ. Just the opposite. Things which must shortly come to pass. Things which are and must shortly come to pass. This is an imminent book. This is a contemporary book. And it was addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor. Existing then who needed the contents of this book. To encourage them to continue in the faith against the opposition. Against the suffering. Against the temptations of those that make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb overcame them. And those that were with Him. The called, the chosen, and the faithful. The whole imagery and the whole te- uh, tenor of the book is he that endures to the end will be saved. Did that not apply to the early church to whom this was written? Did that not apply to Ephesus in Asia Minor? He that endures to the end? Yes, it applied. The, purpose, the point was Ephesus was under pressure to leave its first love. The world was alluring it. Pergamum was under pressure to give up the faith because of persecution as they were located where Satan's seat was. On and on, this book is designed to paint technicolor pictures of old gospel truths in order to invigorate the saints under tribulation to endure to the end. And so in this passage, this great mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, therefore that means that generally speaking, this worldwide uh, Worship and serving of the devil's purposes, this worldwide governmental power and warring machine at whose feet the world bows in cooperation because they can't oppose him. This one is blaspheming God. He is exalting anything other than God as God. This one will not bow to God. He may worship man. He may be humanists. There's not been a generation in the history of the world that was any more dedicated to humanism than ours. Perhaps ancient Rome was, and we're nothing other than a, uh, an extended expression of Rome's worship, Rome and Greece's worship of the human body, the human mind, humanity, man, the hope is in man. This whole philosophical system is nothing new. Blasphemy against God is anything that would exalt a creature above the Creator. 
They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Wherefore, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. So the picture here is that this worldwide governmental power at whom at whose feet the world trembles and wonders, this one that has authority and no one can war against him, he is exercising this in an attitude of blasphemy against God. Names of blasphemy, not just one name. Not just one expression of blasphemy, but blasphemy in all of its uh, expressions in history. Blasphemy out of the mouths of all kinds of the world. It may appear in one form in the East and another form in the West. In our nation, we have decided that there, there should be no God, no religion at all. The, the prevailing governmental view today is use religion to get votes, but don't take it seriously when, the, when it counts. Use the name of God to get response in the hearts of your people. Keep the conservative element at bay by saying, God bless you at the end of your speech. But never define the God. Never localize it into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never zero in on biblical revelation. Keep it in general because none of us really believes anything to it at all. Let the Mormons worship their God. Let the Jehovah's Witnesses worship their God. Let the Christians and the various kinds of Christians worship their God. Let the Jews, the but and, and say it in generic so all of them will feel that you're talking about their God. And keep it that way. We know there's no God. But we've got to play the game because the people wouldn't follow us if we didn't. There's that imagery and there's that spirit in our age. The names of blasphemy in all sorts of ways and expressions. It was given to it. Notice that, verse 7. It was given to him to make war with the saints. And what we read in verse 5, there was given him a mouth. There was given to him authority. Where did he get this? Well, the dragon gives him authority, his power. The dragon gives him his blasphemous ability. The dragon gives him, uh, even later on in the false prophet, the false prophecy and the lying wonders. But in this place, it is given to him to make war with the saints. We may find comfort here. He has no power other than that which is given him from above. Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, Know you not that I have the power to deliver you and the power to kill you? And Jesus said, You'd have no power at all against me except it were given you from above. Whatever the devil ever does, brethren, and this is the design of the book of Revelation, whatever the devil is able to do, whatever power he has, however mighty and awesome and irresistible he is, he may kill you, but whatever he does, he got it by permission from God. And there are limits put on it from the beginning. You see, this book is not designed to promise the saints they won't have trouble. Nor is it designed to promise them that they won't die for their faith. Nor is it designed to promise them that they won't suffer greatly for their faith. It is designed to tell them that whatever they suffer, nothing has happened outside the realm of God's will and God's control. It's given to whatever powers there are, it's been given to them. Nothing is more fundamental to an understanding of the Bible than that, un- that not doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And you must never relinquish that or you will have relinquished all hope of comfort and all hope of joy and all hope of purpose in your life. Once your God is dependent on man for anything, man has become your God. And you're a blasphemer and an idolater. And once your God is dependent on man for anything, you cannot pray with any sort of confidence. Your prayer life will go down the drain. Your worship life will dwindle. And you'll begin to have to resort to gimmicks to get people excited about worship. Don't you release your confidence in the sovereignty of God. All right, now let me, let me show you why I'm convinced 
that this whole chapter has to do not with one generation of Christians, but with all the church of history, and why it has to do not with one individual bad man that we wait for in history, but it has to do with all the expressions of those that in power in this world stand against God and put his people down. Verse 7 says he was give, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And there was given to him authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. He has authority over the whole world. You say, well, pastors, see, that, that proves that this hasn't happened yet. There's never been anybody that had authority over the whole world. But see, this beast, if you remember the description, represents all the authorities and all the powers and all the kingdoms of the whole world. The ten and the seven. Seven heads. Ten horns. This beast is not one individual. This is all throughout the history of the Christian church that have power. So, however you look at it, the general view is that the whole world is under the power of the beast. Now, what did John in 1 John say? The whole world lieth in the evil one. From the perspective of the saints, everybody has gone a-whoring from God. Is that not your experience? You look on the television, and doesn't it continually grieve you to watch news broadcast? You see elements of fact and truth, and yet the bottom line is this rejection of the basic explanation of history. It is as though God never existed. And if they could just see it, you, you wish you could get on the air and just add a paragraph to the report. And come on at the end say, folks, after everything we said, I want to remind you of one thing. God's in charge. What a, what a news broadcast that would be. And it's interesting to note that some in the Christian broadcasting networks who have attempted to put the Christian flavor into their broadcast have gotten fallen into the habit and into the trap of not doing that very much, but trying to explain everything's going to happen in Palestine in the next eight years. They take this in the name of being Christian now, and they're now going to tell us everything that's about to happen. They've been wrong so far for 20 years. And they've had to revise their news broadcast every now. That's not Christian news. The Christian news is good news. That God's in control. He saves his people from their sins. He will save them from their sins. And it was given to the beast to have control. He makes war. Now, there's one interesting thing you need to note. That the, the, the oldest manuscript that I found from this passage, verse 7, omits this passage about overcoming the saints. I don't know what to make of that. Uh, the translators have included it, and they've judged that the proof is stronger on the side of those manuscripts, and there are some ancient manuscripts that do include it. But a papyrus, one of the earlier third century papyri, uh, leaves this out. Well, even if it's left in, let me suggest that we know it cannot mean that this beast makes war with the saints and overcomes them in the sense that he crushes their faith, that he delivers them from the power of God, that somehow he steals them and, and uh, wins. That's not what this means. My, my impression is that if it indeed was in the original text, it means that he overcame them in the sense that he was given the power to do with them in this world what he wanted to do within God's limits, inflicting suffering, making them pay the price for their faith. He could cut their heads off if he wants. He overcame them in that way. They are not in charge of the world. They are not in control of the legislature. The Christians are not in control of the country. The Christians do not control the Department of Education, the Department of Transportation. Generally speaking, in the history of the world, the church is not thought of 
in those things, nor is her voice heard. She has been overcome. The whole world runs after the beast. And they worship the devil. And if you want to stay happy, you just kind of keep a low profile. All right, let's move on, though. And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him. That's the, sense, that's the picture you get. Everybody's going. Everyone's worshiping him. But note the, the qualification. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that has been slain. Who worships him? The non-elect. Who follows the beast? The non-elect. We've not created a new class of people here. We're still in the same department. There are two kinds of people. They're God's people and they're the devil's people. The devil's people worship the beast and wander after him and they don't get persecuted by him. They play the game. God's people get overcome by him. Who are they? Their names are written down from the foundation of the world. If your name's not written down, you'll worship the beast. In the book of Revelation, there are two kinds of people. There are those that worship the Lamb and follow Him whithersoever He goes, and there are those who worship the beast. There are nobody who doesn't worship one or the other. The saints of God in the whole generation of saints, in the whole era of the church, worship God, are true to His testimony, obey His commandments, are the chosen, the called, and the faithful, endure to the end, and with Him they ultimately overcome the devil and the beast and the nations of the world. Everyone else, no matter what he calls himself, is a worshiper of the beast. Is a worshiper of the dragon. Because his name's not written down. Rejoice not that you have power over the demons, but that your names are written in heaven. Read on. If any man has an ear, let him hear. He's saying, look, if you understand the message of the Bible, understand what I'm saying. If you have spiritual ears, understand. And he goes on and says, If any man is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If any man shall kill with the sword, with the sword must he be killed. What's he saying? He's saying if you want to live after the flesh, if you want to play the game of the world and think that carnal weaponry and carnal warfare is the way you're going to win, you're going to win that way and lose that way. He that takes the sword will perish with the sword the same thing the Lord Jesus was teaching the apostles right in the beginning when Peter thought the way we're going to get Messiah enthroned is we're going to get our swords and we're not going to let these guys take him. And Jesus said, put your sword up. He that takes the sword will perish by the sword. If you war with carnal weapons, you will die at the hand of those who wield carnal weapons. If you think it is the mandate of the church to rule the world by external governmental decree, you will become subject to this world's external governmental decrees. If you think it's the rule of God that the church kill people that aren't Christians, then Christians are going to be killed by them too. You read the story of the Crusades? They didn't all work out real well for Christians. Sometimes they, were, they come tuck-tailed back home with very few left from what they sent. You take the sword, you perish. He's drawing this picture of those that resort to carnal means and carnal weaponry in order to get along in this present evil world. You want to play those games, you're going to be subject to those kinds of problems. But, notice, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. 
This is the key. This is the testimony of the witness. This is the test. You don't fall prey to the threats against your bodies. Fear not them that can destroy the body and afterward can do nothing. You don't start scurrying around finding how you can fit in with the world and the government and its means. And so you won't be persecuted for your faith. You don't look for ways to compromise so as to spare yourself suffering. You don't decide to take over the government so everybody will be Christian. You don't become a theonomist. You don't determine that it is the will of God that Christians be in charge of the county government. Christians are to be in charge of the ecclesiastical government. God has appointed rulers in his church. He appoints rulers in the world, and most of them are pagan. And he's commanded his people to submit to them and obey their righteous laws. Why? That's God's plan. And until the end of the, of the age, Christians are going to be living in a frustrating world with frustrating newscasts and frustrating governors and frustrating judges and frustrating governments. Does it mean we don't pray? No. It doesn't mean that. We're commanded to. Does it mean we don't do what we can within the righteous influences afforded us to make a change? No, it doesn't. It means we ought to do what we can. Write letters. Exert influence. Vote. Tell people how you voted if you think that you can tell them and uh, get by with it. Be an influence. However, it is not the mandate of the Christian church to conquer this present evil age here and now carnally and rule over the bodies of other men. Don't think that God is somehow finally going to win this thing for us by letting us have this world and putting the pagans down. Don't think that the Ruth Kleppers of the world and the Planned Parenthood people are finally going to be doing what you tell them and you're going to get them back. That's not the way the Bible reads. Don't look forward to the day when you will run all the clinics. If you're going to do that, brethren, some of you are going to have to go back to college and study a lot harder than you did when you were there. There's a, there's a movement that is broad in the Christendom camp of many professing Christians who think God's told them to take over the world, but they're unwilling to do the work necessary to do it. I would much rather submit my body to a pagan physician who did his homework in med school than to a charismatic who never studied and said God's given him extraordinary power. If God's given him that, why do we even need surgery? Just call me on the phone and fix me. Why did he go into medicine? You understand what I'm saying? I didn't say all charismatics are that way, but there's this mentality that wants to bypass the means and get to the victory. You want to play the game of the world, you'll suffer the consequences. We are not warring, as we've been heard, told so clearly on Sunday evenings, we're not warring with carnal weaponry. We'll hear more, I'm sure, about that. Our warfare is spiritual, and our weapons are mighty. And they deal with thoughts and imaginations and great swelling words and concepts. And we fight, we fight theologies. We fight philosophies. We don't shoot people. Here's the patience and the faith of the saints. The endurance of the saints in the midst of the temptation to give in to the beast. The saints. I don't believe this refers to just a few saints in the last three and a half years of history. I think it would contradict the whole tenor of the book. It refers to the saints in Ephesus and Pergamon, Thyatira and Laodicea. As well as in Albany. The saints. In fact, later on. 
when you read of Babylon, that harlot, you'll note that it says the blood of all the saints from the history of the world are found under her. It gives the impression here that Babylon means more than one particular entity in one point of history. This is a book written to all the saints, to encourage all the saints in every generation of the church. So who is this beast? Well, there are two beasts in this chapter. Look at verse 11. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Now, what's this beast? Well, he looks like a lamb. There's no, there's no fright about him. This isn't a terrible-looking leopard, bear, lion. This is a lamb, two horns. Now, what's the picture here? This beast does not appear to be a beast. This is gentle, innocent. You can touch him. He's not going to hurt you. The other, you'll stay away from this other guy. This fella, people will follow him and love him and feel comfortable with him. Now, what's the picture? The deception. He speaks like a dragon, though. If you carefully weigh what he says, his confession, you'll find out that he's not of God. He's not a lamb. He's a false lamb. He pretends to be a lamb, but he's not a lamb. He's a lion and uh, and a wolf in sheep's clothing. You have to discern what he's confessing. Try the spirits. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his sight. In other words, he coexists with the governmental powers of blasphemy. And he exercises the authority of those governmental powers in their sight. What does this mean? He has the approbation of those powers of the world governments. What he says gets along with the world. What he says, they, it's all right for him. They'll give him tax subsidies. They'll, they won't persecute him. They'll stand with him when he persecutes the true church of Christ. He exercises that authority. He makes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose death stroke was healed. His function seems to be that he welcomes his followers to worship the world powers and the governments and the movement of this earth. He has no problem with you playing the game of the world. He himself is a worldling. He serves the first beast. He's not in this for the glory of God. He's playing. He's probably doing a little bribing under the table. There's this cohesiveness between these two beasts. He does great signs in verse 13. Makes fire to come down from heaven upon the earth in the sight of men. I think that's a reference to the kind of powers that a Moses had. It's not a literal thing to be waiting for someone who can make fire come down, whether it is or not. We are told that some of the old pagan priests of Rome in Pergamum were able to, to produce uh, bursts of flame in some of their magic to get people to follow them. In fact, if you would study historically the history of Pergamum, to which one of the seven letters was written, you'll find that the seat of Satan was really a, 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 an accurate description because Pergamum was the head of that portion of the empire. And Pergamum was where the emperor worship was fully seated and where the, uh, the priesthood of the religion of Rome was at its superior power outside of Rome. And in Pergamum, they actually had uh, an, uh, an image of a serpent to be worshipped. And here was this little church in Pergamum worshipping Christ in the midst of a city in which everybody's worshipping a snake. And this serpent represented the emperor's authority and the priest of the serpent required people to call Caesar Lord. And if they didn't, they didn't get by with the society. They lost their jobs. They weren't supported in the community. Nobody spoke to them and some of them got killed. 
Now, the reason I point that out is to help you get out of this mentality that somehow this whole book is waiting for something in the future. The whole emphasis of this book is to help some real Christians living at the time of the writing of this book deal with these kinds of principles then present in the world. Emperor worship. Where the priests of the religion of Rome actually pointed people to the emperor and supported him and worked wonders, lying, deceptive wonders to get people to worship the beast, the first beast. And in Pergamum there was an image set up to the emperors. So don't be so quick to refer your theology to the most recent paperback. Much harm has been done by shallow study and, and cheap paperbacks that popularize a myth, in my view. And we need to be very careful. Now, I say that having taught much in the history of this church, this stuff, and I'm recognized that some of you may not have been with us during all that, and you may think, Pastor Allen, I thought, well, this is a good church, and you're now, you're now going against my favorite radio preacher. I didn't know you were going to attack the very fundamentals of the faith. Brethren, that's my point. Until about 150 years ago, a lot of this stuff had never become a fundamental of the faith. It had been. It was not in the majority at all. It was never well received in the history of the church as a major movement. Maybe, maybe somebody who taught you had forsaken the fundamentals of the faith. Maybe there's another way of approaching this thing. I'm just trying to deliver you from missing the whole point of the book by getting bogged down in little details that probably aren't even accurate. The principles are here. Deception. Verse 14, he deceives them that dwell on the earth by reason of the signs which it was given him to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. It was given to him to give breath to this image, even to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And brethren, I'm going to join uh, Hendrickson and others and say uh, difficult passage. Whatever this means, it means that he makes it seem to the world that the governmental powers of blasphemy are really real and godly and to be worshipped and a right. They have whatever image he's got gives breath to the beast. Uh, people are so deceived that they think this is the source of their happiness in their life. At least it means that. And however specifically you apply it in history, I'll leave it to your liberty and your humble judgment. Verse 16, he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the bond, that there be given them a mark on their right hand or upon their forehead. Everybody gets this mark. Everybody gets the mark. No man should be able to buy or sell, save he has the mark. The name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. He that has understanding, let him count the number of the beast. It's the number of man. Maybe of a man. The definite article is not in the original. The number of man. His number 666. What are we telling? What are we saying here? Well, William Hendrickson has an interesting comment about the number. He says the number of man is six. Always short of seven. Man was created on the sixth day, not the seventh. 
Man is short of perfection. Man never measures up to the full number seven. Man is all, and here we have six, six, six. Multiplied failure, he calls it. And this beast is human. It's man. It's man's blasphemous worship of himself. This beast, whatever he is, his number signifies that he, he falls short of the glory of God. He is the man of sin, of lawlessness, of failing to live up to the standards of the law of God. You say, well, Pastor, is it in the UPC code? I've got a book one of you lent me, and I've still got it on the shelf, and one of my back shelves. Um, I was trying to be gentle when the brother lent it to me because uh, he wondered if there wasn't some basis to it because uh, the way this book is written, it shows some examples of how this number 666 is being coded into the UPC code, brethren. Oh, I wish that the devil's wiles were so easy to discern. If all you got to do is avoid the cash register at the grocery store to get to heaven, what a way. But that's what we're talking about. I mean, that's what it boils down. I don't mean to ridicule those that believe it. I want to help you, though, understand this is the latest or one of the latest in a fanciful effort to figure out the number and where we can find it. If it is the UPC code, no Christian in history has ever had to worry about this chapter is applying to him. Now, that's a serious problem in the nature of the book of Revelation and the stated purpose of it when John says, I, John, your fellow sufferer in the tribulation, which is in Jesus. He was in the tribulation. So were they. And he was writing to them who were in it to give them the ability to endure the faith in the midst of it. And I doubt very seriously if this prediction of the mark of the beast does not apply to those people. It's symbolism. You said what it says in their foreheads and in their right hand. But I say, go back to the earlier part of the book. The saints received a seal in their foreheads. A brand. Which saints are these brethren? Who are we talking about? I've never, I've never met a saint except on Ash Wednesday that had anything in his forehead. Some have used that. That's how literal they get. The seal of the Spirit is true of every saint, is it not? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Where's that seal? Where's the mark? Well, William Hendrickson again suggests that this mark on the forehead symbolizes that your whole thinking process, your whole theological and philosophical disposition has been branded. And the mark on your hand is, is a mark of your deeds. It's, it represents your, the right hand of your doings. So what do we got? We've got the thinking and the confession and the deeds of men that are marks of who they belong to. The seal is a picture of belonging and ownership. They're, they worship the Lamb, they have His seal in their foreheads. They have His mark, He owns them. They worship Him. These others worship the devil, and they have His mark. And it's easy to see the mark if you know how to discern the thoughts, the confessions, and the behavior. It's not in a UPC code, it's in the life. You shall know them by their fruits. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in that day, we cast out demons, but you'll know them by their fruits. Here is wisdom. Here is wisdom. Brethren, it doesn't take wisdom to dissect the UPC code. It takes wisdom to discern behavior and confession. Try the spirits. Now, you say, now, which, what about the Antichrist? This is the Antichrist. Let me ask you a question. Which one of these two is the Antichrist? The first beast or the second beast? 
The word Antichrist is never used in the book of Revelation. I'd just like to leave you with that thought. This may not even refer to what we think is the Antichrist. But I would suggest this, that if it does, and if it refers to the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2, the second beast answers more to 2 Thessalonians 2 than the first beast. The Antichrist, if 2 Thessalonians 2, which does not use the name Antichrist, if that's the Antichrist, he's the false prophet who sets himself up as God and works lying wonders to deceive people. All I'm trying to get through to you is there are some things that simply are not taught in this passage, and I want you to dispense with them. The emphasis here is the patience and the faith of the saints. This period of 42 months is the same period in which the devil is out persecuting the woman, knowing his time is short. He's wroth. Why is he wroth? God has cast him out of heaven where he accuses the brethren day and night. The cross of the Lamb has frustrated him. My daily readings this morning, how thrilled, how thrilling it is to wake up on Sunday morning, open my Bible in my own daily consecutive readings, and how many times it just right into where I'm going to teach in Sunday school. That blows my mind more often than not. This morning it was in the strong man's goods and the strong man possessing his house, and another breaks in and binds him, a stronger than he, and starts dividing up his goods. The kingdom of God is upon you. Or we read in Revelation 12, just before this chapter, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who died in his death, bound the Satan from his ability to accuse legitimately the brethren. He cast him down from his lofty position of accusation. Rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. He's cast down the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them day and night before our God. Woe to the earth! Because he's come down to you. His binding in reference to heaven is his loosing in reference to earth. And what is blissful in heaven because he can't touch those who are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Who's can condemn? Who is he that lays anything to the charge of God's elect? We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The devil can't touch us. But he has been loosed in reference to the earth, so woe to the earth. He has power. The whole world lies in the evil one. Even now many antichrists are gone abroad. We know, therefore, that this is the last hour, we read in First John. And so the devil is abroad, the devil is wroth, and the devil for 42 months has got it in for the church. Three and a half years, 1260 days, this whole period of time. Go back and look at those symbolic numbers and find them dovetailing with this whole period of Christian history. Now... Am I saying that there's no way that there will arise in the future a single individual who will inculcate all these principles in himself in some time? I'm not saying that. I'm not convinced there will be, but I'm not convinced there won't be. I would say this, though, that whether or not there is a future individual who will answer to any of this, it doesn't matter as to how you're going to live and as to the promises of God that apply to you, and as to the commandments that you're under obligation to keep. It will not affect it. All that that would be if there is a future individual who possesses unprecedented power and and, uh, evil in himself, even if in the interpretation of some it's an actual incarnation of the devil, which I doubt. My own personal view is that incarnation is a privilege reserved to God, not to the devil. But... Whether or not there is that, and I don't see that in the text, 
If there is, it'll be nothing other than an extensive intensification of the same principles that have been operating the whole time. It will not be a change in kind, and it will not give an advantage to Christians at the point of discernment. There will be no more reason, if there is such a person to arise, for saints and others to begin to note a major change so they can get ready for the coming of Christ than for the first century saints to get ready for the coming of Christ. When he comes, shall he find faith on the earth, he asks. When he comes, will you be ready in an hour that you think not, he said to the apostles. And I believe through them to the church. So comes the Son of Man. It will be sudden. There will be no escape. Nobody will be expecting it. The picture, and we're going to come back next week, God willing, the picture. The whole world is getting along fine cooperating with the way the world thinks. The whole world has no reference to a need to repent, a need to fall to the feet of Christ, a need to turn to the true God of the Bible. They think you are off your rocker still believing this stuff. The whole world's out there and they're surrounding us and they're everywhere and there's a sense of cloister and a sense of press and a sense of loneliness, isn't there? There is for me. And there's a frustration in it and there's a fear in it and there's a threat to it. And they're all out there. They're normal. You're the wrong. You're, you're nuts. And sometimes you actually sort of start thinking maybe they're right because there's so few of us. And not all of us know for sure what we're doing. That's the picture. But the gospel says, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And though every tribe and tongue and nation has gone after the beast and they wonder at the beast and they worship the beast and they won't go with you and they don't they think you're crazy... Here's the patience and the faith of the saints. He that endures to the end will be saved. Fear not them that can destroy the body. Fear him rather that can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Endure to the end. Not with a carnal sword, but with the sword of the word of God. And buy the truth and sell it not. Now let next week we'll come back and develop this just a bit and get into 2 Thessalonians 2 and the man of sin and see what we can learn from that passage. But what I've sought to do is not to give a complete analysis, but at least to try to set this in its context historically and biblically and spiritually. You've got an enemy, and he always shows himself in the powers of the world around you, and there's a threat to your job, to your children's education, to your own security and well-being every time you take a stand for the old truths. And in most of the world today, the first day of the week is not a day off. And you really have to pay a price to meet on the Lord's Day every week and worship. We're headed in that direction. And we'll find out. Someday your tithe will not be tax deductible. They'll take it. We'll find out if you've been given for the deduction or for the blessing. But until those days come, understand that we're not walking in the way of the, of the world. And that means we're going to have trouble. In this world, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, the Lord said. That's supposed to give you cheer in the midst of your tribulation. That's a proper interpretation of Revelation. Whatever else we do with the details, at least the book is designed to enforce those great truths of hope for the Christian so he can endure in his faith till the end against all opposition. What are you going to do if you find out that the Antichrist has been born and there is such a man in the world? What's it going to change? Is it going to change what you believe? 
it going to change what your hope is? Is it going to change your obedience to Christ? Is it going to take your breath away? Well, it might have some effect on your emotions. It might have some effect on your daily paying attention to things. But brethren, it's not going to change anything ultimate. And if he doesn't rise, if such a thing is not there, it's always been here. And it's always been the threat. You who are lured by Babylon and think of leaving Christ because you've got some things in the world you want, that's, the, that's what Revelation is addressing. You that are afraid of the persecution that's being brought by the world upon you, and you're thinking of compromising for Christ, that's what Revelation is addressing. You who are being deceived by false religion and false philosophies because you love the world and you're vulnerable, you did not receive a love of the truth, so God sends strong delusion, that's what the Revelation is addressing. The old themes of steadfastness and righteousness in the midst of suffering. And the end of it is Christ will, spot, will show himself faithful and sufficient for his people. That's about Our Father, these are difficult things. They are wonderful things. They are awesome things. We trust, O oh God, that you will further give us light and sight and discipline and discernment in handling such things. And if we have uttered anything this morning, O oh Lord, that is not according to truth, you know that it has not been purposeful. You know that we long to be clearer. We pray you'd help us. Give wisdom to those that lack it and ask. And then we pray that your church would live faithfully no matter what comes in this earth, that we would not compromise the least element of truth or righteousness for ease or comfort's sake. Oh, God, we need grace. Our hearts tremble in our weakness and unbelief. Come and strengthen us for the task of righteous living in this wicked and perverse generation. And give us understanding of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.